Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the EMILY program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your own discretion when listening or that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today, we're exploring eating disorder recovery by way of an award-winning writer and speaker, Lindsay Hall. Lindsay is joining us from Boulder, Colorado, where she writes honestly and openly about recovery on her blog, I Haven't Shaved in Six Weeks. The blog has been named a top mental health blog by Healthline and other media outlets, and Lindsay has been featured in publications including the Today Show, the New York Post, the Washington Post, and Cosmopolitan. Lindsay, thank you so much for chatting with us today. And thank you for having me on. You're welcome. Let's dive in. Let's first provide some context to your writing and to to other recovery work. Can you give us a little background about the eating disorder that came first? Yeah, so I like to say that I have a pretty traditional um, eating disorder story. It started when I was 16 and, and uh, and I struggled with it up until I was 24. You know, no one wakes up and has an eating disorder. It's like one of those things where I woke up and I I started doing this and then this behavior and this behavior. And then I usually say that around 18 when my, my best friend died in my first week of college. And um, I think when you live in a culture and, and I think in Westernized societies, we all kind of struggle with this idea of how to grieve properly. Um, and so at 18, that's when I really feel like the eating disorder kind of manifested in my life because I wasn't sure how to grieve. I kind of felt like I was really suffering and that I could only talk about my best friend so much before other people didn't really want to hear about it or before it seemed like I was supposed to, you know, quote, get over it. And I didn't know how to get over it. I didn't want to get over my best friend. And so from about 18 to 24, it just was a steady, steady decline. I call it the cycle. I lived in the eating disorder cycle. I don't think I struggled with any one thing in particular. I think it was the entire cycle as a whole, because as we know, like, anorexia leads to to binge eating and binge eating leads to purging, et cetera, et cetera. And it can all interchange within itself. So when I went to treatment at 24, um, there I was like scared. I had no idea what to anticipate. I, you know, nobody talked about it. I had known friends that maybe had secretly gone to treatment for alcohol or drug related issues, but I certainly didn't talk about it with anybody. And so I remember looking on the internet and trying to find these kind of like nitty gritty topics about what was it going to be like in there? Like, what was I going to eat? Who were, who were the people going to be? I was scared. And all I could find online were kind of these salacious headlines and these, you know, documentaries that were kind of horrifying at the time. I went in very, very blind. So I promised myself that when I got out of treatment, that I would write about it and that I would try to humanize some of these aspects of, of treatment. So that's where my blog came from. Because once I went through a six week, hence my I haven't shaved in six weeks blog title, (laughs) I went through a six week inpatient journey. And one of the things in there that I learned is that you can't have razors. Um, Obviously, that seems obvious to me now. But at at the time, I didn't realize that. And I was like, well, that would have been a nice thing to have known. And so there came I haven't shaved in six weeks, which started as a nine part short story um, about my time in treatment and about you know, about the connections and, and the growth I did there. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's so true that it's hard to know. It's hard to know what it'll be like and, and layered on top of all that the eating disorder is saying and sort of intruding upon in our experience before treatment. That's a pretty messy time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it came to a point when once I was out of treatment, out of the, at least the residential part of treatment, I was back at home. Um, I'm from Dallas, Texas. 
And I was at home and I kept running, you know, I was doing IOP and doing some, some more because as we know, there's, it's a long process to try to start unlearning some of these behaviors and characteristics that are involved in an eating disorder. And um, I kept running into people and I just, something was not sitting with me, right, about lying and omitting what I had been going through. Because I would see someone on a Tuesday and they'd be like, um, don't you live in New York now? Because at the time I was living in New York. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm just home visiting family or something like that. And so at one point, that's, that's kind of where the writing came is that I was just like, you know what, if I'm going to like get over the shame of these years that I've spent in this eating disorder, if I'm going to get past this, like I have to own my story. Um, little did I know what career that I would be able to build off of it. But at the time, it just felt like this calling. And so it started with like a Facebook status. And then from the Facebook status, I was just inundated with people being like, oh yeah, oh my gosh, I had an eating disorder. My sister, my brother, my dad had an eating disorder, et cetera, et cetera. This was back in 2014. I just realized there was a huge need for some transparency in the recovery community. And then of course, as the years have gone on, now we have Instagram and all this other cool recovery community. Right. Yeah, it is fascinating to think about how it's evolved over the years. So when you were, when you were writing your first blog posts right after treatment, I imagine that was a little bit different of a group you were writing for then versus how it's evolved over the years. So when you think about your sort of your first posts, who were you writing for then, would you say? Yeah, writing has it changes so much because at the time it was so scary to even start coming forward with this kind of information that I was really scared of freaking people out. So I think I monitored my voice probably a lot more in the beginning than I even realized until later. I was I was writing more from my own personal community at that time because I had no idea where the writing would go. All I knew is that I just had these certain stories, these kind of moments. I've always been a writer. It's always been my passion. But I just had these moments in treatment that I wanted to capture so so badly in writing. I wanted to, to talk about the other women. I wanted to talk about the friendships that I formed in there. And so I, I wrote about them. What I, think, what I think changed over time is my ability to like not be okay. Because I think in the beginning, if I look back at my blog posts and some of the writing I did, I, I slanted everything in this completely optimistic like light of I was always doing really well. And I look back and I was like, I was two months out of treatment. Things were hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was a really hard time. And I, I just was scared of freaking out my family or freaking out my friends. So uh, that's what's really, you know, changed from the beginning. And, and then, of course, I started writing more for the masses and less for just my intimate community. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's hard to explain, right, what, what treatment's all about, that it's not just here you go someplace for X amount of time and you come out and you're fine. We all know that it doesn't quite happen that way. And trying to explain it to people can be really overwhelming in the beginning, like, oh, I'm going to go to treatment and then I'm going to come out and I'm going to be better, but not better. And I'm going to still need treatment and it's going to take some time and, but it's still good. And then I'm going to struggle and that's still okay. And then, then maybe it'll get really great. And then maybe it'll have a dip and that's normal. Like that's a hard thing to explain and have make sense to people when they're looking for like, okay, you have this thing that I don't really understand. And now you're going to go get some treatment for it, which I kind of only understand. And now you're home or maybe maybe home, maybe not. Uh, what happens then? So it is a fascinating subject, I think, to, to be thinking about and talking to folks about. And then like you're saying, to have it be real, that it's not actually all like magical and rosy right after you get out of treatment or during treatment or after, right. uh, that life happens. And 
you know, you might be early on talking a lot about managing eating disorder behaviors. But yeah, life happens. Other stuff comes up. Challenges come in just like anybody's life. And the eating disorder experience adds a level of sort of complexity to that, right? Especially in the beginning, just just going off on that, like especially in the beginning too, when when you're so fragile, right? When you get out of treatment, right? Like there's still this like complete fragility of, of, of like waking up in a way and under and realizing like for me I was like so lost into like what did I want to do now like I had spent so much time manifesting this eating disorder and like and existing within it that I didn't really have hobbies mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have skill sets I felt like I was way behind the average 24 year old at that time and so there's like a you know there's an intense amount of like insecurity that I experienced in the beginning that I wish I had been a little bit probably more transparent about but I was so scared of not seeming recovered enough <laughs> and seeming like you know I didn't want to I didn't want to upset anybody and upset my family and that was kind of where the evolution had to start taking place in my writing is like I could only talk about like the great parts of recovery for so long before I had to kind of talk about some of those nitty-gritty subjects cuz that's what I had set out to do in the first place Absolutely. My recovery from my eating disorder started at about 22. And I, between 22 and 25, I think I like, had an adolescence that I didn't have before. And it, it is interesting to try to explain that to somebody while you're going through it. It's, it's tricky. It's not the usual experience maybe, but I think it's a common experience for people with an eating disorder because the eating disorder really does kind of rob you of so much of normal life stuff, the ups and the downs. But you then live out after you're, you know, doing a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, there's just these like breakthroughs, right? And like, for me, it was just in the beginning, I just felt like I was kind of bouncing around. Like, do I like cooking? Like, should I like take up pottery? Like needlework? Like knitting? Like, should I do this? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, like, like ceramics. Like, I had so much stuff and I just didn't, I didn't know what would resonate for me. And really it's been, it's probably been writing that has really served as, as a huge, you know, that's now my main hobby. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. You channeled it into a, a main focus. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what about, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on recovery. Those have evolved with your blog over time. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of recovery, how you think about it. Tell us maybe what you mean by, by flexible recovery. Just riff a little on your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I kind of coined this whole like flexible recovery idea. And it, it's, it's often met with, you know, varying degrees of people being like, yeah, thank you for saying that. And then other people being like, isn't this this quasi recovery, right? Mm-hmm. But the way that I look at it is that when I kind of busted out of the treatment doors, I wanted to be totally okay. Um, that was just kind of the expectation. I felt like I was trying to appease everybody and be okay, right? And just be like perfect and totally over it and never needing to think about it again. But the fact of the matter is I'm six years into this recovery and there's so many things I'm still learning six years in. Like it took me five years to like completely quit counting calories. Like that took a long time for my brain to untrain. And even though I wasn't actively looking to count them, I could still it was like so ingrained in my brain that when I saw something, I could still remember it just from eight years of conditioning, that kind of thing. And I felt shame, I think, for the first couple of years about some of the ways I was still unlearning, as I like to put it. And so when I finally kind of came to this, this realization and this acceptance that recovery is a flexible beast and that 
you live in this kind of flexible okay all the time, I was able to, to move past a lot of the shame of feeling like I needed to be more perfect recovery or that I needed to be farther along in my journey than I was at the time. And it's kind of giving myself that, that grace, so to speak, that I've been able to honestly grow into it. Like even at this point where I'm kind of going through a transition with alcohol as well, because it took, and that took me five years to finally like pick my head up, you know, recovery, like recovery just, it's like an onion. It just keeps unfolding all these things. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I just kind of, I realized like recently that my relationship with alcohol has been problematic in the past and is problematic currently. And so it's like, okay, I don't think that I would have gotten there without the recovery in the beginning. You know, it, it just, it's keeping, it's keeping my eyes wide open to my thoughts and my patterns. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because, you know, there's this image of, you know, this ideal recovery or it's just going to be so smooth or it's going to be so linear, which we know it's not. And how would it be? But I, I'm always fascinated by where the ideal comes from, right? Like who's setting the ideal? We talk a lot about, about the ideal beauty standards or appearance standards and who sets those and all that junk. But this concept of ideal recovery, like who's making up the ideal recovery concept? And, and we somehow, it seems like fall into some sort of trap that I really think is promoted by the stigma that, okay, you had this illness. Well, that's, you know, tricky enough, but now you have to have the right recovery. Why on earth do we have to fight through all this stigma? That's just fascinating to me and, and sort of saddens me and intrigues me and, and energizes me all at the same time. But I wonder if you've given any thought to that of like, who's writing the ideal recovery rules that we're trying to follow and then feel bad about when we don't follow. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I, cause I, I think about that quite a bit in my own personal life. And I think some, I think some of it's fueled by this, by a lot of us that experience eating disorders have sort of this perfectionist tendency, right? We have a little bit more black and white thinking at times. And I think that I just, I first immediately came out thinking with the black and white thinking of like, okay, so this is the problem. I'm going to address it. Now it's over, right? And when that didn't happen, I had to kind of take a further look at like, why do I feel that way? And what's stemming from that? We live on social media, right? And everyone's on social media and the recovery community itself has blown up, which in so many ways is beautiful, right? Like I really love the recovery community in many, many ways. But in that same fashion, a lot of times I think that we get on there and we want to write out our stories, but we're also too scared to be really, really transparent about some of the struggles we're going through because we're, again, worried about maybe some of the same things that I was worried about, like our families judging us or our friends intervening or our partners being worried about us. So we like to like tie everything up with like a perfect little bow at the end yep. <laughs> to avoid scrutiny <laughs> or to avoid opening ourselves up to any kind of like <laughs> vulnerability and like the scrutiny of, of admitting that maybe there's still, you know, some issues there. That's the way I kind of think of it. And I, it's just, I think it's social media has like played some part in that over the last six years as we've watched the recovery community grow and grow. Cause I remember six years ago, writing about eating disorders on Instagram was a pretty small sphere. And now it's like, you know, now there's, it's, it's a big thing. And it, celebrities are talking about eating disorders pretty openly, you know, like Taylor Swift or Demi Lovato, which is great. People need to talk about it. Right. Still also feeds into some of this, like everyone wants to have a story with the beginning, middle and a perfect end. <laughs> right. Right. We can all be proud of. <laughs> yeah. That we can all be proud of and show our parents. <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> it does strike me that along with the, uh, the, 
genetics that predispose us to having that temperament trait of perfectionism also probably predisposes us to have, you know, not such strong uh, willingness or ability to be really vulnerable. That those must sort of go hand in hand. That that uh, if you're going to be if you're going to be perfect, pretty hard to be vulnerable. So you got to figure out how to have perfect not have to happen in order to be vulnerable. So I, I think there's some really interesting intersection there that, that I agree that increased conversation about, about it in the recovery community is a beautiful thing. And if we can really encourage each other to not have to be perfect in our recovery and to be vulnerable together, what more could we ask for? That's where real healing and, and connection happens, right? When we're vulnerable together and support each other. Yeah, and maybe not in, in this ability like to kind of see our thoughts as just that. They're just thoughts. You can see them like like we're <laughs> like we're a person and we have a tent over us and our thoughts are like the rain that's falling off the tent and all we can do is observe them and they're not necessarily they're not necessarily truths that have to stay truths. It's just like when I feel like I'm not doing well or when I'm having a day or I'm having like a bad body image. I mean, sometimes it's a week. It's not just a day, right? Like sometimes this stuff feels like it's plugging. Mm-hmm. And what I've grown into is this constant awareness of like, okay, it, it will change. Like, you know, like no thought is permanent. <laughs> right. It will stop raining at some point. Yeah, it will. And I just have to kind of wait it out and try to like, all I can do is take care of myself in the meantime and keep doing the things that build up my confidence, which who, who knew self-care is a really big part of that. Who knew? <laughs> who knew? It took me a long time to really understand that. <laughs> but now I'm all into yoga and stuff. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Meditation's okay for you? Like, okay. Really? Awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. How is, how is writing served to protect your recovery in that? I imagine writing for you in particular is a really important part of that. Can you speak a little bit to how your writing actually is protective for you? Yeah, it's easier than sometimes even doing things like speaking, like as I am right now, because writing gives me that ability to reflect and articulate my thoughts in a fashion where I can actually contemplate them for longer than just speaking them out loud in that moment, right? <laughs> um, and I think it's protected my recovery in the sense of like, once I was once I was online, and, and again, I feel very blessed by this and, and never could have known that this was going to happen six years ago, but the more I've been able to talk online and the more I've been able to be scrutinized online, because let, let's be totally clear, not everything I've written online has been met with, you know, a warm reception. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like I have certainly uh, said things uh, that were offensive to others that I've had to learn. It's a constant growing and learning experience um, and understanding like how my words might affect other people, et cetera, et cetera. But in that way, being able to like learn how to take feedback from other people has really, really been helpful in my own recovery in the sense of like, even the other day, I accidentally... um, I was on my story, my Instagram story, and I was talking about an ex of mine who who struggles with heroin addiction. And I was flippantly writing, totally admittedly, I was being lazy and just posting it really quickly. And I said, my addict ex. And within about 15 minutes, I had three messages. They, they were nice, but they were like, pretty like, I don't appreciate you saying addict ex. It's pretty like definitive of a person when you don't like calling yourself like an anorexic, right? Like I wouldn't appreciate being called that. And I was like, no, you're totally right. And so I just had to own it. And I like wrote a little story and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly learning and uh, I appreciate your feedback. And I think that even in itself 
protects my recovery in the sense of like being able to have that backbone to, to take feedback, right? And not be totally insulated in my own beliefs and in my own way of being and, and, and opening myself up to the feedback of other people and, and to learn from them and to grow in myself too. Absolutely. And that sounds like a, you've learned a ton through your writing and being so public with it. Has that challenged your recovery in any ways? I, I mean, I, I hear how it's challenged sort of you as a person, which is, is a beautiful, interchangeable feedback gift if we can do more of that as people to, to share our perceptions with people, have it be received, have a dialogue around it, be able to interact with each other is a, is a challenging and beautiful thing. Is there anything that, that has really made you sort of sit back and think, oh, wow, I really, really got to spend some time thinking about that, or that really triggered something, or that that was really emotional for me to hear or to receive, and what do I do with that? Yeah, I think it's mostly, um, it's been a process to, to try to give myself boundaries with certain messages that I receive. Um, because, you know, I have, I have Instagram, I have a blog, I have another blog, I have, an, <laughs> I have a Facebook and between the emails that I get on a pretty daily basis and the Instagram, like direct messages that I get for a long time, I really struggled and I still do now, um, with guilt of not getting, not answering every single one or not having the perfect answer for something like, like I even have a perfect answer, right? There's been times where I've read a message that's been triggering mostly because it's usually from someone who's really, really actively sick and they'll tell me what their weight is. They'll tell me their whole story uh, in grave detail. And sometimes reading that has been difficult because it's just, it's hard to see a number and not compare. <laughs> uh, it's just kind of the brain's way of immediately doing it. So it's been challenging in both the guilt of feeling like I need to answer everybody. And then also in just like the comparison factor of sometimes some of these emails I get. What's been on the flip side of that though, that's really beneficial is, is having to just exist in that discomfort. Uh, because I think there's growth there. I think the only growth that you can have is in that kind of discomfort. So when I do feel uncomfortable, I acknowledge it to myself. And I try to look a little bit deeper into like, why is that making me uncomfortable? And then in the shame part of it, it's had to make me really, really stand up for my own boundaries, which I've never had before in my life. And I can't get to everybody's message. And I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a guru. Like, I'm just a person with an eating disorder, like that, that blabbed about it online for a while. <laughs> like, I don't have all the answers and I can't heal anybody. So it's just kind of having that, that awareness. But yeah, no, of course, there's been difficult parts of it. There always will be. And then, oh, and of course, getting like body shamed online has been difficult as well. Right. Our society is so, so well equipped to do that at, at a moment's notice, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. And, and funny enough, in the recovery community, it can be pretty difficult. You know, there, and there's something to be said, and, and I don't want to, I'm not going to dive too far into this because it's not the subject of our podcast today, but like, there's really something to be said about acknowledging thin privilege, right? And that is totally a thing that needs to be acknowledged as more of a political movement too. And, and more of, of understanding what it's like for somebody who exists in a larger body. But I have had multiple times been shamed online for how my recovery body looks um, in that it, that people don't feel like necessarily maybe I'm not recovered enough sometimes or they don't understand why something looks this way. Um, and the, 
the blessing of that, the underlying blessing of that is, is that it does leave you with kind of this like ferocious, like self respect, I suppose. Like I've had to like grow into myself in spite of that, that commentary um, to try to, you know, and, and have to like constantly reevaluate and ask myself like, okay, am I okay with where I'm at? And if I'm okay with where I'm at, and if my friends and those people that love and know me and watch me every day are content and don't, and aren't worried about me, then that's all that really matters. Right. I think that's so important. It really is that, you know, we're the place where we have to sift through all the things that we think. We're the place in our, in our heads that we have to go through all that and, and we have to come up with an explanation that we can find peace with and that we're okay with. I, it, it reminds me, I'm sort of smiling, thinking of years and years ago, I had a, a day when I was seeing clients all day long and one client came in and was saying, you know, I, I'm really thinking this recovery thing is going to be okay. And, and I see you and, and you're recovered. And if I could just like, if I can look like you and be recovered, I think I'll be like, I could be okay. And I was like, okay, you know, and left the session. And I was thinking about it and that, I'm not really sure what that means. And I sort of left my mind. And then literally like two hours later, I'm with somebody else. And they're like, yeah, so recovery, I don't know, this thing you want me to do, interesting. But if I have to look like you, to be in recovery, I, I don't know. Well, <laughs> and I thought, I honestly, I'm not even sure what I said at that point. But then I, I remember thinking that day, like, wow, a, it's really not about me, right? And and b, that's fascinating. That that's you know, same body probably didn't change that much between eleven and one. That has such a different response by different people in the same world, and that it really made me think. And and I and thought a lot about that over the years, that you just have to be at peace with yourself and where you are in the world. And that's hard to come by and hard to, hard to manage and maintain sometimes, but important. Absolutely. And I think also allowing space for like other people in recovery to have their stories heard, right? A big awareness for me is that like, I have to do better as like an influencer or as a writer to make sure that I leave space for other people with atypical, you know, uh, eating disorder stories to come forward and be, be role models for people in different size or different looking recovery bodies so that the, the whole community feels inclusive and that it doesn't feel like to be in recovery, you have to look a certain way. Um, or that to be in recovery, this is what it looks like because it, it looks so different for every person. And I think that's where we're finally as a community really starting to grow into ourselves of like allowing everybody's body to be represented, right? And, and at least try, although there's a lot of criticism online. So we're, we're still working on it. <laughs> we're getting there. We're, we're just getting the, the world to acknowledge that, that eating disorders don't discriminate by size or shape. So exactly. <laughs> uh, it'll take us a little bit longer to get to, you know, recovery doesn't either. And it probably is varied. It does, uh, it does make me think that what what do you think the online recovery community is doing well and, and what could it use more of? What could it do differently? Oh, good questions. I think what it's doing well at is that I, I do think it's a supportive community, or at least it, its intention is always to be a supportive community for the most part, the people that are really active online. And I think it's doing a really phenomenal job, especially with certain people that have very powerful voices online. They're doing wonderful jobs at calling out diet culture and calling out some of this really, really deeply ingrained, um, deeply ingrained messaging that we all grew up with as millennials, right? Because I'm, I'm 30 and I certainly didn't know any other way when I was 12 and 13 and really, really impressionable. 
um, anorexia to me looked like Mary Kate and Ashley Olson because that was the only kind of resource that was out there. And I do think the recovery community is fierce in in its ability to call out some of this bullshit, <laughs> lack of better word, and to to start making clinicians, you know, everywhere have to think about how they address their patients, making doctors think about how they're addressing their patients, um, and really helping to change society's really really stagnant view of of what specifically a woman, of course, men do too, have eating disorders as well, but what women can look like and be and how we can be represented in our communities. So that's where I love the recovery community and think that it's thriving. You know, I think the recovery community can, again, be difficult with some of its uh, judgment. (laughs) I think that there, you know, I see and what I'm finding is that often defensiveness met with defensiveness never gets anywhere, right? It's just like pain to getting pain. But if I get called out for something or if I get a mean comment, I have found that that when I address that person in a, and I try to come from a place of like that maybe they're in pain or they're hurting too, um, I found that usually if I come back with grace that I'm met with grace. So I appreciate that. But it's, yeah. It, it's it can be again. I think that's a lot of Type A personalities because of of how eating disorders can manifest for a lot of us. And so there's there's there needs to be allowed for more grace, in my opinion. <laughs> I love that meeting 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 grace with more grace. I think that that really could go a long way in getting us a lot further in lots of areas. <laughs> and it it does make me think of sort of I'm gonna I'm gonna switch tacks a little bit and bring us back to where we started and thinking about about 18 year old you. What would you tell 18-year-old you now? What grace would you want to give 18-year-old you in that time, in that pain, in that, in that grief, in that transition? Anything you'd like to tell her that could have been helpful back then? Oh, yeah. I wish I had told myself that to grieve openly is not a bad thing. You know, like I think I, I used to look at grief as like this very negative emotion and that it was supposed to end. And I think grief and praise actually live quite quite aligned together. Um, I don't think you can have grief without praise. And I don't think you can have praise and joy without grief. I just wish I hadn't seen it as so black and white. Like, I will never stop talking about my best friend. Um, I will always miss him. I will always wish that he was on this earth longer than he was, and that he got to see the beautiful things on this planet that I've gotten to see in my 30 years thus far. Um, So I guess really what that comes down to in terms of the eating disorder is that I just I wish I had allowed, I allowed myself the, the beauty of grief because it took me a long time to start grieving openly again. Um, really, in treatment, it was like all this emotion came up when I, when I was in treatment about my best friend. And uh, it felt so good to grieve him because I had to get that grief out so that I could start praising him too and start to like really see my life again as not just this like really sad event that happened when I was 18 but to see all the ways that Bradley has manifested in all of our lives since his passing. So I think that would have been a, a big thing. And then also that how, how I looked at 18, because there was just so much pressure. I, I grew up being uh, in a very small body. I was very short and that was my identity. I really, really took that on as my identity because, you know, when I was growing up, I don't think teachers and, and, and adults really realize that their words super impact children. So when I was constantly referred to as like, you know, line up short, shortest to tallest in class, and I was always the shortest, 
you know, it just became my identity of teachers acknowledging how short I was or small I was and smaller than the rest of the kids. I had to get, you know, my, my uniforms altered and stuff like that. I just didn't have a growth spurt until I was mostly through high school. And when I did have that growth spurt, there was all of a sudden this like really huge realization that like, I didn't know what my identity was because I wasn't the smartest girl in class. I wasn't, you know, the most athletic girl in class, but I had always just been the smallest because that's what everyone said to me. And so I really didn't want to lose that. And I didn't think I was supposed to grow. Like I thought I was supposed to stay that kind of height and weight forever. And so when I was 18 and, and no longer that height and weight and was beginning to wear the same clothes as my friends and, and look like a, an adult, I wish I could go back and be like, yeah, you were supposed to, you know, you're supposed to grow. How you looked in high school is not how you're supposed to look as an adult and, and later on into my 20s too. But I really struggled with thinking that I was supposed to look a certain way. I didn't have any understanding of the human body and how the human body is supposed to, to navigate in life, you know, and how we're supposed to be like, we're, we're aging all the time. Like the human body is constantly changing. I have gray hairs now. Like <laughs> every day, we just keep getting older. <laughs> right, we just keep getting older. And with that, with that age comes, you know, the very tiny amounts of wisdom that we're able to garner in this life. And I, I now look at my body changing as kind of a result of all the years that I've had and, and of all the wonderful and beautiful experiences I've had to like live on this planet. And I don't know how long I get. And so it just, I wish I hadn't wasted that kind of, I guess, time back then to worrying about it because I'm 30 and I didn't get anywhere in life because of my size. <laughs> <laughs> if we could just, you know, collect up all of the, the things that eating disorders have, have taken from people and stolen from people and, and you know, sprinkle them over the planet. We'd have a, a really a huge amount of, of lost time and, and lost things. And like your blog and your writing and other things that you and the recovery community is doing, it would probably shower the world with a lot of beauty. And it is and it does. So I think that's the that's the silver lining that all of that loss has now resulted in all this beautiful support for each other and hopefully a, a continued growing in that support for each other in, a, in the online recovery community and elsewhere. So I, I really appreciate the work you're doing in that and that I love that you're contributing your voice to this really cacophony of voices that are out there that are a beautiful choir. Oh, thank you. And yeah, I totally agree with you. It's kind of like, I don't think that having regrets for the years that I missed is necessarily a bad thing, um, as long as there's not shame around it, right? I just regret that I missed a lot of my pretty pivotal early 20 years. Um, I wasn't present. I don't remember a whole lot about them other than what, you know, partying to an excessive point to try to like block out the insecurity of, of my eating disorder stuff, and then also living in the eating disorder, right? And so it's like, I... I look at those years and it does fuel you. I mean, I, that regret does fuel me at least. And it feels me to be like, okay, I, I will, I can't miss another one. Like, I don't know when this life is over. Like, <laughs> this is all I get. So <laughs> it is propelling, propelling you forward. Yeah. Totally. Any, uh, any last bit of advice for, for your 18 year old self or that person out there right now that's struggling with an eating disorder and wondering if they should get treatment or tell anybody or, or ask for help? Yeah, I think if you're, you know, it's so hard to, it's so hard to go and seek treatment when you're, when you have a pretty routine life, right? Like the biggest thing for me is that every time that I thought about going to treatment or finally saying, hey, I have this issue, um, was 
fueled by this idea of like, no, I have to be sick enough or I need, I need enough people to notice that I'm sick enough for me to actually be valid enough to get it. But I was never going to be sick enough. And frankly, I didn't come from a world where, you know, I didn't look the traditional um, part. And so not a whole lot of people in my life necessarily knew that I had the eating disorder for as long as I did up until the very end. And I wish looking back, I had had the, not the confidence, just the awareness of understanding that anorexia, believe me, all of it doesn't have to look a certain way and that I had asked for help a lot sooner. Um, Because you're just going to continue to live in the cycle. And I was so worried about leaving my job and leaving my, my apartment and leaving this life. I thought that, you know, I didn't know what opportunities would arise afterwards. And my God, like, I didn't realize I was starting my life at that point. <laughs> like, right. I, I couldn't see it then, but like, I couldn't have gotten anywhere that I got unless I had gotten that help. So leaving a job, it doesn't matter. There's other jobs out there. Like, <laughs> leaving your apartment, it's fine. Like, maybe you're going to rack up some debt, because I certainly did but it saved my life and I didn't get, and I got to where I got my career because of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for the work that you're doing and sharing your experience and listening to others. We really appreciate you hanging out with us for a while today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me on. Absolutely. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. Peace Meal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.